Coming up on this week's show, Jordan Castile-Price joins us to talk about the latest in the Psychop series. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 226 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Will from willkanaus.com, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Mr. Jeff Adams. Hello, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. We'll have more information on how you can join them at the end of the show, along with a sneak peek of what we've got coming up for you next week. I got no polite way to say it. January probably sucked for most of us. Things have sucked really, really hard ever since 2016, so let's not sugarcoat it, everyone. Hopefully, you made it through January 2020 alive, and that you have, you will soldier on into February, uh, new month, new new goals, new, new things to explore, uh, new books to read, and we'll get to that in just a few moments. But before we do that, Jeff has got some recommendations. Part of the suckage that has been out in the universe uh, the last couple months in particular has been what's gone on with the Romance Writers of America. We haven't dealt with that too much on this show for a lot of reasons, but we do want to point out some podcast episodes from friend of the podcast, Sarah Wendell, over at Smart Podcast Trashy Books. She's released a four-episode miniseries, which started this past Friday and continues through uh, today, if you happen to be listening on Monday, February 3rd. Uh, She's interviewed a number of people to document what happened at the end of 2019 that essentially began with the suspension of Courtney Milan on December 23rd. These interviews include the officers from the Cultural, Interracial, Multicultural, Special Interest chapter of Romance Writers of America, the former RWA president, Helen K. Dimon, RWA's current marketing and PR manager, as well as an interview with Courtney Milan herself. Uh, We have started listening to these episodes, and so far they've been very insightful. If you would like to listen to these, the links to them are in the show notes. And uh, it can give you an idea of what's been happening uh, in the broader romance genre. So give those a listen if you are so inclined. In addition to our regular reading, we've also been watching some TV this past week. One of our favorite shows, The Good Place, wrapped up. It did its series finale, and it was wonderful. It was. We've been fans of The Good Place. We've talked about it periodically. This show is designed to be a sitcom, but has some heavy bits of drama and a fair bit of philosophy, which you don't get a lot on network television, as it kind of documented four people's journey into the afterlife and, and what the afterlife might hold. It's a poignant show. It's a meaningful show. It's a hilarious show. And I think this is one of the best series finales that I've ever seen a show do. It wrapped everything up so well. It leaves you, at least for me, I was very happy with where all the characters ended up in the program. And just good job to Mike Schur and NBC for giving us four years and 50-something episodes of such goodness. Also this past week, we dove into the brand new Netflix series, AJ and the Queen. We watched all 10 episodes, and at the end of the day, I liked it an awful lot. I don't know if anyone has been paying attention to some of the buzz online. It's generally very positive. The first episode and a half, I would say, is kind of rough going. 
let me explain. The main character, played by RuPaul, Robert, his life has reached its pinnacle. He's about to open a club with the man of his dreams. Unfortunately, that man ends up being a grifter and takes all of his money. So at the beginning of the series, Robert is a bit of a sad sack, and he encounters AJ, a little girl whose mother has essentially abandoned her, and she's pretty angry and mean and hateful and loud and frankly kind of annoying. This isn't the best first step a series can take, but I think if you give it an episode or two, we begin to understand AJ and Robert a little bit more, and their really interesting dynamic comes into play when Robert decides that since he has no money, his only choice is to go on a cross-country drag tour, ending up in Texas, where he's going to compete for the cash prize in the Drag Star of America contest. I forget what it was called. Something like Something that, like yeah. That. Anyway, and, and AJ hitches a ride in Robert's uh, beat-up old RV and uh, completes the cross-country tour with him in order to go live with her grandfather in Texas. Lots of hilarity and drama ensues. Lots of laughs, lots of poignancy, weird and wonderful adventures along the way. There's one point in the story where AJ falls off a swing and she fractures her arm, so they have to go to a hospital and there's a sort of drama and complications involved with that. But in that particular episode, we learn why both Robert and AJ hate going to the hospital. And they give us some insight into who they are as people and why this cross-country uh, tour means so much to them. Yeah, the, the hospital episode in particular was one of my favorites. It's one of a couple of really standout moments because... It is here, as you noted, that you really get a big chunk of their backstory. We visit it through flashbacks, moments of their lives that are profound for them. And it was a, a, a diversion from some of the episodes that had come before it and then come after it. And I, it, was, it was a real pinnacle for me for that very reason. And from a plot standpoint, our, our hero and our heroine, as they, as they make their cross-country trek they're being pursued by robert's ex and uh, a crazy woman named lady danger <laughs> which is one of the charms and one of the problems initially of the show the tone varies widely it shifts between comedy and drama on a dime and i think that's kind of what threw me at the beginning as well mm. i didn't quite understand what they were shooting for but as the series progresses i kind of get its sense of humor and sort of what kind of meaning it wants to put forth by some of the dramatic storylines. As they make their trip, AJ and Robert also encounter a Bob Mackey museum in Tennessee. They see they make, you know, they see old friends, they make new friends. The the Bob Mackey episode <laughs> was hilarious. For one thing, why is a Bob Mackey museum in this Place. It wasn't even like it was in Nashville or something like that. It was in the middle of nowhere, which actually turned out to be uh, Stars Hollow because they used the Stars Hollow uh, set on the Warner backlot. So it's like, oh, I know this place, but it's not that place. It's in Tennessee. And it was one of the more curious episodes because Robert 
almost has a bit of a rebound from his ex, but it turns into like a bizarre encounter and there's like all these Bob Mackie dresses. And I will say that that particular episode sent me down a rabbit hole to find the 1981 Diana Ross TV special, which in its own way is a very peculiar thing because you haven't really seen something until you've seen Diana Ross duet with Larry Hagman. Total tangent there from what we're talking about, but worth noting for my own brain. And that'll be in the show notes if you need to see it, too. (laughs) I'm not sure you do. Anyway, (laughs) at the end of the day, we really enjoyed AJ and the Queen. Spoiler alert, it ends on a cliffhanger, which some people hate. I thought it was an appropriate place to start. Fingers crossed that this show is going to come back for season two. Yeah, it, it... I like it. it better come back for a season two because I want more. A uh, couple more shout outs that I'll give. There are some amazing cameos throughout this series. We've got Mario Cantone as another drag star. We've got Laura Bell Bundy in here. We've got Mary Kay Place. <laughs> there is a wonderful couple who own a garage where AJ and Robert have to stop because the RV is having some issues. That couple is played by Adrienne Barbeau and Mark Singer. And that might be the best cameo in the entire show because of that. Plus, there's Jane Krakowski, who is guest starring in one of the pivotal episodes as well. And she was a delight, as always. And you didn't say who played Lady Danger, but that was a totally bonkers Tia Carrera, who I totally enjoyed in that role. (laughs) So yeah, we both wholeheartedly recommend that you give AJ and the Queen a try. You can find it on Netflix. Hi. I'm Jay from the LGBTQ romance review blog, Joyfully Jay. At Joyfully Jay, we review tons of LGBTQ romance, as well as romantic fiction and nonfiction. We review ebooks, audiobooks, and even the occasional movie. We typically review about 18 books a week, so Joyfully Jay is a great place to hear about new releases, catch up on books you may have missed, and find some new favorites. In addition to our reviews, each weekday we host an author as our first post of the day. This gives readers a chance to learn more about new releases, get exclusive excerpts, find out about the author, and participate in great giveaways. Each author post on Joyfully J is exclusive, so you get access to book and author information you can't find other places. At Joyfully J, we love LGBTQ romance and are excited to share it with you. Stop by the blog at joyfullyj.com. You can also visit us on our Facebook group, The Joyful Jays. We'd love to have you join us. So this week, I read the ABCs of Spellcraft collection. It's the series of novellas written by our guest today, Jordan Castillo-Price. I highly recommended the first story in this series last year when it first came out. The first book is called Quill Me Now. And if you're interested in my complete thoughts on that particular book, just check out the Bad Valentine bonus episode. That was episode 175 of our show. Just a quick recap. We're introduced to Dixon. He is a down-on-his-luck spellcrafter, and he gets mixed up with the evil Flint, who runs a greeting card company as a front in order to learn the secrets of spellcraft. And while dealing with him, he meets Flint's uh, Russian bodyguard, Yuri, and they end up falling for each other while saving the day. It's really interesting and funny and heartfelt, and it sets up a very interesting story world where magic is part of everyday life, and it combines different components of 
the urban fantasy genre along with uh, cozy mysteries, which is a really interesting hybrid that I don't think anyone other than Jordan Castillo Price could pull off with such a plomb. <laughs> the second story in this series is a short story that Jordan uh, gave out to her newsletter subscribers. It's called All That Glitters. And in that short story, Yuri meets Dixon's, shall we say, eccentric parents. They they go over to the house for dinner and end up searching for a magic red spatula. It's, it's weird and it's wonderful. And it gives us some insight into why Dixon is the way he is and why family means so very much. Speaking of family, Dixon's uncle Fonzo is missing, and it becomes the key story point that links uh, all of these books together. In the second book, Trouble in Taco Town, they get a lead on Uncle Fonzo. So they go to Taco Town, Minnesota, um, where they find things are slightly awry. Some spellcraft has gone wrong. The town's beloved giant taco has been besieged by a flock of rare birds. And the local motel has been, in turn been besieged by some very demanding bird watchers. One of the local farmers, her, <laughs> her tomatoes are so ripe that they explode. And a gift shop owner who manufactures taco snow globes. The machine goes on the fritz and the little tacos end up looking like a certain piece of female anatomy. So... <laughs> While trying to uncover if Fonzo was indeed responsible for all this mayhem, they solve the town's issues and get another lead that Uncle Fonzo may be at a nearby spa, leading us to book three, Something Stinks at the Spa, where they go to a local mineral spring that has unfortunately been turned into a sulfur spring. The entire town <laughs> is enveloped in a cloud of funky gaseous sulfur as the spring has gone dry and the poor local hotel and spa is just about to go out of business. So while Yuri and Dixon investigate Fonzo's possible influence in everything that's going wrong in this small town, Dixon ends up giving a spa treatment to a jilted bride and Yuri must massage a self-important businessman. All the while, they try to impress a local travel writer who, thankfully, has allergies and can't smell anything. So as long as they give the impression that everything is going well, they can get a good review and hopefully get this hotel back on its feet. They eventually set things right and get a call from Uncle Fonzo himself. So... Our two heroes head off to a creepy carnival. In book four, Dead Man's Quill, they extricate Uncle Fonzo from a difficult situation at said carnival and then take him home where they uncover the real reason for Uncle Fonzo's disappearance and the fact that he has been cursed and how in the world are they going to craft a spell to get him out of the situation. If you can't tell from my description, the series is weird and wonderful and very funny. And like I said, in a pretty ingenious way, it manages to mix two subgenres uh, that are a complete delight. Quick shout out 
to the narrator of the ABCs of Spellcraft collection. We talk about the narrator that Jordan found for this particular project, and he is amazing. If you've already read this series but haven't checked out the audiobook, I highly recommend you do. I think he does a remarkable job, not only with Dixon and Yuri, who are two delightful heroes, but are really kind of polar opposites on the personality spectrum. And what he manages to harness in his performance is uh, really charming and delightful. So I really recommend everyone check out this series if they haven't already. As you were describing it, I just had a cross from you grinning because it sounds so ridiculously fun. And last year I got to read a couple of cozies and really enjoyed them. And I'd love to see more cozy mystery find its way into MM because they could be a real delight. So my story this week certainly falls into essentially the Valentine category for so many reasons. Not only is it called 19 Love Songs, which certainly fits a Valentine theme since we're just a couple weeks out from that holiday, but it's also written by one of my literary heroes, as it is a collection of short stories from David Levithan, who I just adore his storytelling. Diving into this new edition of short stories was absolutely wonderful. It's a collection that really shows off his talents. Many of these stories have actually appeared in other anthologies, but for me, the majority were new, and even the couple of rereads that were in there uh, were really like hanging out with an old friend. Now, it's impossible to cover 19 shorts in a reasonable amount of time. So with that understanding, I will just say that I loved all 19 of them, and I'm going to hit on a few of the highlights. First off, anytime David revisits classic stories, I'm thrilled. And among the stories here are The Quarterback and The Cheerleader, which was part of the 10th anniversary edition of Boy Meets Boy. And I really loved reading this all over again because this tale of a date between Infinite Darlene, who is both the quarterback and the homecoming queen at her high school, and Corey, the cheerleader from an opposing high school, is an absolute delight. They're, they're angsty going out for the first time. They were angsty at, you know, through the asking out process because if nothing else, they're opposing schools and you've got to go through not only that aspect of it, but the fact that they're actually asking out somebody brand new for the first time. And it it's just makes my heart flutter in the best ways. <laughs> There's also a glimpse in this collection with A from Every Day as we get day 2934 which is a Valentine's Day that A experienced when they were eight. It's a very poignant day as A tries to do right by the mom and the kid they are inhabiting that day. Valentine's Day means something particular to this mom and, and, and child, and A does everything they can to really make it special while also kind of beginning to grasp for the first time what Valentine's Day means in this culture that they live in. There's also a two boys kissing story as Avery and Ryan have their fifth date, which actually turns into a sleepover due to a massive snowstorm that happens. You know, snow days are always the best, and this story is so cute, and it's filled with just enough teen angst as they are in this forced proximity overnight uh, with each other, and it's so super, super sweet. Now, here's a few of the tales that were uh, extraordinary and new to me. Now, hang on for possibly the longest title ever. Here we go. As the Philadelphia Queer Youth Choir sings Katy Perry's Firework. This whole story is an internal dialogue amongst the choir members. Some of them are wondering why they're singing that particular song, because they should really be singing Lady Gaga's Born This Way. 
Some of them are wondering if a certain person is noticing them, whether that's in the choir or perhaps in the audience. Some are reflecting on what it means that a particular parent is in the audience. This thing is an utter delight, and you could totally imagine these teens up there singing their hearts out while these other thoughts are all just you know, spinning around in their brains. How My Parents Met is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it's a beautiful story about people finding each other. And this is actually an autobiographical piece that Levithon actually narrates in this collection. And it's he's written it about his parents as a gift back to them, essentially. And it really details the making of a life, both the simple parts from a you know, dating in college to some of the more complicated issues that arose in their relationship. Another slice of relationship life is the story 12 Months. Here, two men who are together for some unknown amount of time before the story starts experience a year, and you get the ups, the downs, the in-betweens. This simply captures love and how love can persevere even when times can be tough, when the relationship requires work and might even be on the verge of collapse, and how when the relationship is strong enough, you bounce back from all of that. One of the most unexpectedly fun stories is The Woods, in which a relationship nearly meets its end when a guy discovers his boyfriend runs a very popular Taylor Swift fan blog. The guy can't understand why it was a secret in the first place, and especially because he doesn't particularly think Taylor is all that. But hating the hurt that he causes his boyfriend, he binges Taylor's music, rereads the blog, and starts to put all the pieces together on why this matters. It's an interesting take on why people might keep their obsessions a secret, what happens when they get revealed, and how it can actually bring a deeper understanding to a couple's bond. The last story I'll mention here is also the final one in the book. It's called Give Them Words, and it tells the importance of telling stories and encouraging others to tell their stories. This one's also narrated by Levithon, and that just adds an extra punch to it. It's a perfect cap to the collection. And as I mentioned before, while I've only shouted out less than half of the 19 stories, each one of them is a gem. The audiobook is particularly excellent because all these stories are brought to life by an ensemble of narrators, which includes the author himself, as I mentioned, and some others that you'll recognize, like Michael Crouch, who has narrated Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda. It's just, it's, it's so good. It was like being wrapped up in a warm blanket as I listened to this over the last week. So as Valentine's Day nears, 19 Love Songs is a perfect collection to lose yourself in for a dose of love in its many forms. If you're interested in learning more about the books or anything else that we've talked about in this week's show, all you have to do is go to the show notes page for episode 226 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Coming up next, after this short break, we've got our interview with Jordan Castillo-Price. Did you know that podcasts love to get reviews too? Taking a moment to leave a review about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast helps us with the show's visibility online. Please take a moment to visit iTunes and leave a review. Your comments help other readers of gay romance discover this show. Thanks for helping us spread the word about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. Recently, I had the chance to sit down with Jordan Castile-Price for such a fun interview. We we delve into both of her worlds. We talk about Bitter Pill, which is the 11th Psychop book that just came out uh, a couple weeks ago. Plus, of course, we dove into the ABCs of Spellcraft, which, of course, Will just raved about a few minutes ago. So let's get in there and, and hear about both of these worlds. 
Jordan, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to have you here. It's nice to see you again, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We have so much to talk about. And and kind of the big news is you just released uh, the 11th Psychop book back on January 20th. Before we talk about the new book, take us back a little bit and, and tell us about the series itself and what got it started in the first place. Yeah, it's crazy to think that it's been going this long, but it was originally it originally started in 2006. And I answered a call for entries at Torqueray Press, which is one of the earliest MM presses. Mm -hmm. And they were looking for novellas with uh, with paranormal elements set in a day-to-day world. And that's kind of my jam. So I wrote it specifically for that call to entry. But the funny thing is, for people who don't know the series, the protagonist is a psychic medium who has a bit of a pill habit. And the drugs shut down his psychic abilities so that he doesn't have to see ghosts everywhere. And where that came from was I had a friend who was a paper hoarder and he hoarded all sorts of weird types of paper and stationery. And he had these post-its from a pharmacy or from a pharmaceutical rep with uh, a printing on it for something called Spectrosef. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if Spectrosef made you see ghosts? But, you know, Spectrosef means wide-spectrum antibiotic, clearly. But that's where the drug came from in the in the story, and that's really the genesis of all the world-building, is that Post-it note. That is amazing. Post-it <laughs> notes. You never know where the house. idea is going to hit you. <laughs> <laughs> So where do we find Victor as Bitter Pill opens? And and what do we have to look forward to in this story? Well, Bitter Pill opens. He's now working for a government agency that is kind of a psychic big brother. And he's working there because he suspects they have always been watching him. So he'd rather be on the inside if he, you know, if he has his druthers to, to know who's who's keeping tabs on him. And he figures that it gives him an in to explore a bit of his past, which is sort of lost to the foster care system. The prior novel, Murder House, had him doing his first undercover assignment. So he was playing a civilian rather poorly. But unbeknownst to him, he was picking up some more interpersonal skills. He's notoriously awkward throughout the series. And uh, I wouldn't say inept. He's, He's surprisingly good at what he does but inside he's cringing the entire time Mm -hmm. and I think he grows a lot in book 10 interpersonally from having to live with another agent and pretend to be married so book 11 he's it's more of a classic psychop I would call it it's more digging into his past digging into ghosts there's a drug on the scene that psychics get so addicted to that they just do it until they die. And so he's trying to figure out what it is, where it's coming from, and what to do about it before it can spread. And ghosts are involved. I would expect nothing less in a psychop book than to have ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) Looking back to 2006, did you have any inkling that this would go for, you know, now 13, 14 years and 11 books? I had no idea. I had no idea. And, you know, 
the publishing landscape was so different even five years ago, let alone 14 years ago. Self-publishing wasn't even a thing yet, and the Kindle didn't exist yet. And, you know, my actually my very first book that came out was on a CD that they mailed people. So I can't even believe the changes that have come through the publishing industry since since I've been writing. And no, never. I didn't know the series would have legs, as I call it. I, I mean, I knew there was something special about it. I knew the protagonist's voice was unique. And I knew his chemistry with the love interest was great. And I knew there were a lot of stories I could tell with the two of them. But I would never have thought they would, I could do it for a living ever. Mm-hmm. That would have been, I would have been stunned and probably wouldn't have believed you if you would have told me back then. Did you plan it with the idea of a series or initially was it just, there's this call and I'm going to put this book in for this call? It's exactly what you just said, Jeff. There's this call and I'm going to put this book in and oh my God, someone bought it because <laughs> I had this big Excel spreadsheet and I had a stable of stories and I would send them out and get them back and send them out and get them back. And very, very, like once a year would maybe sell something, almost never. And even though every time I wrote something and thought, oh, I think this is great, I would send it out and, you know, nothing. So even though when I sent out Among the Living, I thought it was special, you know, I thought that about everything. So as we writers do, (laughs) we do, we love it. We love our latest baby. (laughs) What keeps the series interesting for you after so many years? I think that the flow, there was a time when I needed to write different standalones and explore different things because it wasn't fresh for me anymore. And I knew that I was going to regurgitate the same thing if I just pushed and wrote only Psycop. And I think lately I have found a balance where I am writing Psycop and one other popular series. And as I flow between the two of them, I I get ready and eager to write the other one. So it's a good balance of having, you know, a a happy protagonist and then a sullen protagonist. (laughs) And switching up between the two seems to fuel the, the writing flow. Where do you get the ideas for the books as you go forward? Is it something that triggers just out in the world? Or do you have like a list of things you want to put Victor through or some mix thereof? I think the ideas come from the writing of the previous book or the previous few books. So I'll hint, I I don't have an overall game plan. But I do have a game plan that started a couple years back. So the thing that I will write in Psychop 12 is something I've been thinking about for probably four years. Okay. So I'm thinking on it for a while. I'm thinking, okay, how am I going to reveal this thing and how can I hint toward this thing? But I think my generative process involves a lot of simmering. And so I will have been thinking about... I want this to happen to Vic or I want this to happen to Jacob. So how can I start nudging the books toward it and making it feel inevitable? Mm -hmm. How far out are you planned at this point? And do you know when this wraps up or is it just for as long as you have these ideas? I make plans. And then as I get 
toward the next step, I see it's all changed. And this is how I outline too. I'll outline a whole thing. I'll write the first chapter. I'll look at my chapter two outline and say, well, that's no good anymore. You know, because something will have happened as I was writing chapter one that makes chapter two seem not quite right. And so I plan, but then I have the flexibility to change all my plans because I discover so much in the process. So I initially planned a certain ending for the series where we uncover Vic's origin story and it's, oh my God, this is what, this was my past and this is why I am the way I am. And I figured, boom, that was a good end. But two things, I feel there's a lot of ground I can still cover with these two guys and a lot of exploration I can do. And you can kind of keep dropping them into different situations and they're still interesting. So as long as they're still interesting, I really don't see a reason to make it end, Mm -hmm. but it does mean I think I need to move the origin story up and make it not be the big climactic moment because I think there's only so long you can stretch out suspense (laughs) until it becomes silly and tedious. Mm -hmm. So like I'm reading Janet Ivanovich's Stephanie Plum series. I don't know how familiar you are with it, but she's got a love triangle that's been going on since book one. And it's to the point where it's just dumb. It's like, just pick one of the guys. It's dumb at this point. And I don't want it to to be dumb that like, well, you know, Vic's got all these resources. Why can't he figure this out? He's not a dumb guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything you could tease us without going into spoiler territory about Psychop 12? I have not decided where it's set. And that's what I'm stuck on. So that's not much of a teaser, but it's it's where I am right now. I know who needs to be there, and I know what Vic and Jacob are going to proactively be trying to do. They're going to wring some answers out of somebody, but I don't I don't know where. So okay. uh, that's kind that's kind of what I'm uh, toying with right now and trying to figure out. It's still simmering a little bit. It's it's at the simmer point. Yep. <laughs> Let's talk about that other series that you work on, the ABCs of Spellcraft. Yeah, that's my new baby. (laughs) That one just started about a year ago. And you've got four out, and you've just got the audio bundle out as well. Tell us a little bit about the series. So the ABCs of Spellcraft started as a project between me, Claire London, Jesse Lee Ryan, and Dev Bentham, where we just wanted to write a cute Valentine story and all four of us wanted to release a, a story at the same time and have like a fun little group book release. Mm-hmm. So we each wrote a book with the same beginning line. Nothing good ever came of a Valentine. And we each released our book and I wouldn't have known it, but mine had legs. And I said, you know what? Dixon and Yuri have more to do. So mine turned into a series And it was surprisingly well-received because I think it's very different for MM. And I was feeling like MM needed something fresh. And by that, I mean, um, I had been studying mainstream paranormal cozies. And I was studying their structure. I was studying their language. And I was studying their conventions. And I was wondering if it was possible to write an MM where the sex scenes were downplayed I didn't remove them entirely, but they're definitely not super descriptive. No swearing, comedic, and focused on 
screwy personalities and fascinating characters that are quirky and that you don't know what they're going to do next. So it's almost like it's almost like an I Love Lucy MM or something <laughs> happening, but with magic and, and really allowing myself to be as weird with my humor as I want to be, even though that's a little scary and a little vulnerable. I think writing funny is hard because you you don't know if you're going to put a joke out there and think it's hilarious and watch it fall flat. You mm-hmm. just, you never know. But having my narrator, he's so, he's so good at understanding my timing that every single line that I, I write that is supposed to be comedic, he hits spot on. He just gets, he gets every single thing that I thought was supposed to be funny. He delivers it as if he thinks it's supposed to be funny too. Did you two collaborate in that regard or did he just read it and immediately know this is what this book needs to be and who these characters are? We collaborate a lot on character in the beginning, but I do this with all my narrators. I describe who I think the character is to them and I talk a little bit about their motivations and, you know, if they have any quirks or something, I might suggest that too. So, I mean, he did get a list of who everyone was and how they should be. However, in auditions, I had a line that went, oh my gosh, how do you, you think somebody's going to pay you a thousand dollars for a stupid poem? And he replies to his cousin, oh, doesn't have to rhyme. And this guy was the only one who read that as if it was funny, you know, and everyone else just sort of flat out read it. And I knew like, well, the one guy who understood that was a joke there is the one I want to use, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I definitely hear, you know, his, his rhythms as I write those characters now too. Given that this started from the same prompt as your other authors did in that Valentine series, did that essentially set off how spellcraft created itself or was this bubbling around somewhere for you before the prompt came up? I understand what you mean. No, I think it was sparked by the greeting card and the Valentine because the premise of spellcraft is that you need two people to, to work the magic. You need someone to paint an image and that harnesses the magic and you need someone else to write words on top of the image and that directs the magic and a greeting card was the perfect place to have that combination take place. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I should say Nick Hudson is the name of my super fabulous narrator. And and new to MM as we were talking about too, before we actually push the record button. Yes. He, he's got experience doing cozies and mysteries, but he's never done an MM before. So Nick Hudson is his MM narrator name. Cool. And I, I can't imagine a more perfect Dixon pen. Just just nails it. And I'm excited that you're bringing more Cozy to MM because I think Cozy, at least to me, seems underrepresented in the MM market. Not just in MM Paranormal, but MM in general, I think. There's not a ton of the Cozy mystery type stuff out there. Very few, only a few people writing it. And I think that there is room for people who want something a little bit different. You know, it's it's hard to know how deep to drill down in your genre and whether you're being too hyper specific because it seems like, well, I have a gay paranormal 
cozy with witches. It, it just seems like, you know, <laughs> what's the potential audience there? 30 people? <laughs> I feel fortunate that enough people were willing to take a chance on it. Mm-hmm. Are they as much fun to write as they as they are to read and even to look at? Because the covers are ridiculously fun. Oh, good. I'm glad you think so. Sometimes they are, and sometimes they're a little harrowing because I get that anxiety of like, I think this is freaking hilarious, but could be I'm the only one who feels that way. And and you really don't know what's going to fall flat or, or what people are going to get. Mm-hmm. Anything new for Spellcraft in 2020? Since yes. now that we've got Psychop 11 out, do we get something new for this? Oh, absolutely. I don't have a release date yet, but Spellcraft 5 should be coming out soon. And so the way I wrote it structurally is that the books are novellas. So they're about half half to a third the length of a, a typical novel. And each one is its own little mystery or, or romp. But they form arcs. They form distinct arcs. So the arc of the first four that went into the first collection and the first audio is the main character's uncle is missing. What's going on with Uncle Fonzo? And that arc is resolved by the end of the first four. And thereafter, there's going to be arcs of three books. And so the next three that are coming out is what's going on with Pinion Bay, which is the city where they all live. So there's there's something sinister going on in the city and they have to figure that out. Okay. So yeah, so each grouping has its own arc and then each book individually has its own thing to solve. Calling it a mystery is kind of a stretch. It's more paranormal than mystery, but I'm calling them cozies because they take the characterization and rhythms of a cozy more than any other genre that I can think of. Both your series involve a lot of world building. What's your approach to building the world so that it's there and doesn't overwhelm the reader as they try to figure out the world? And what kind of research do you do to build this stuff or is it just all top of the head? I feel bad when people ask me how I do my world building because it's just so instinctive for me. Um, And I think, as far as I can tell, I think my process is that when I when I lay down a rule, like if I say you can't you can't destroy a piece of spellcraft because it will set it could set the magic. You don't know. Could be doing opposite what you think you're trying to do. So now that I say you cannot destroy spellcraft, going forward. You can't destroy spellcraft. So what does that mean? Well, I could have someone destroy one and have it boomerang. Or what I did do is I had uh, my protagonist make a business out of unmaking them, which is which is the correct way to, to dispose of them. But the things I say, the things I like kind of draw a line in the sand and say this is the way it is, then I'm stuck with that going forward and I have to figure out ways around it or figure out ways to incorporate it. So... It's almost like a snowball rolling down a hill. I just start with this little crumb of an idea, and then it gets bigger and bigger as I extrapolate on it logically and and try to see it through to its logical end. Mm -hmm. But not planned. (laughs) Not planned at all. Are you generally a pantser? I think I'm a combo writer in that I, I do know where the stories are going to end. 
I generally know what the climactic scenes are. From reading Save the Cat, I've actually found a new point that I write toward that isn't the climax, but it's it's the false victory. Mm. The moment of ta-da and everything's great, but it's not. <laughs> I, for some reason, that's a stronger shining moment in my mind of of where the protagonist thinks they're they're good and they're they're really not good and it's a more interesting part because i think the twists come out of that interesting so i'm i'm a semi planner but like i said i come up with stuff as i'm writing that turns out to be really important that i have to then incorporate in spellcraft which is more comedic there are usually like running running gags going through that I, you can't plan a running gag, I don't yeah. think. It has, it has to naturally come out of the text. For some reason, I've noticed everyone's been saying, Pinion Bay is not a thriving metropolis. And I one day I just said, I wonder how many times that has actually been said in the series. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much how everyone describes Pinion Bay. <laughs> <laughs> but these things come out, evolve organically, I think. Mm-hmm. Going back in time for you a little bit, what got you started as a writer? I was a voracious reader of high fantasy and urban fantasy. And when I got my first computer in 1999, and it was a Bondi Blue iMac, I did two things. I put Photoshop on that sucker, and I learned how to Photoshop, and I started writing. It just was an impulse in me that I I think with a computer, it's the ability to delete and redo as many times as I need to frees up my creativity in a way that using traditional materials, there's always the thought that I could ruin something by making the wrong mark or writing the wrong word and knowing that I can assemble and reassemble and redo and change as many times as I want, which is what the computer allows me to do. Uh, really opened me up to all sorts of different self-expression. And those blue iMacs were so cute. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) So the high fantasy paranormal material, is that always kind of just where your heart's been? Absolutely. Is that what you were reading? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not one for contemporary much of anything. I'd like to have either monsters or uh strange technology sci-fi mm-hmm. sci-fi-ish not necessarily space opera but like some of i i've written a little bit of sci-fi but they're more speculative like one of my older sci-fi works was well what would happen if somebody invented a food that ended world hunger how would society then change mm-hmm. or what if vampirism were a deadly contagion or trying to think what else I've written that is more sci-fi-ish. I have a futuristic one called Zero Hour that was what if what if everyone was a clone. I have another one called Meatworks that where the the question is well what if instead of Wi-Fi and the internet and cell phones what developed in the 70s, 80s, 90s was robotics. Mm. And so it's a world run by robotics. Were there any particular like books or authors that really kind of influenced you as you were in your in, in those formative years? I think Tanif Lee was probably my 
biggest influence. She had a lot of sort of androgynous, beautiful, deadly characters that that always seemed that seemed very much larger than life. And I think when I was a new writer, I I mimicked her style, although it wasn't my style at all, turns out. But I got that all out of my system, you know, before I published, because I wrote a lot, a lot before before I ever was published. Very cool. Is there something genre or subgenre wise that you really want to tackle that you just haven't quite gotten to yet? I would like to someday probably do a disaster, a disaster survival type thing. I don't know why, but I'm always very intrigued by that. I do love a good disaster movie. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. And especially if they have to sort of make do. I was just thinking about Lost. Do you did you watch Lost when it was on? For a while, do you remember yeah. do you remember like in the very beginning when they were just figuring out how to be on the island and they figured out that Sawyer needed glasses, so they found like glasses among the corpses and like soldered together two halves of two different glasses for him to wear. Mm-hmm. Just stuff like that intrigues the heck out of me. So I, I would like to I would like to do a good survival novel sometime. I don't know when. That would be awesome. I hope you figure that out because I there's not <laughs> enough disaster type novels out there in the world in the MM world either. I can't think of I can't think of any. I can't either at the moment, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so please make one. <laughs> so what is the best way for everyone to keep up with you online to keep track of future Psychop and future spellcraft and all other Jordan goodies? Well, definitely you could look me up on Facebook or you can sign up for my newsletter at psychop.com slash newsletter. Perfect. We will put the link to that in the show notes along with all the books we've talked about. Wish you the best of success with Bitter Pill and all the good stuff with Spellcraft as well. Thank you, Jeff. It was so fun to talk to you. This week's interview transcript has been brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Thanks again to Jordan for coming to tell us about Psychop and the ABCs of Spellcraft. In the interview, she mentioned Spellcraft number five that she was working on. Just this past week, she put it up for pre-order. It's actually going to be called Last But Not Least, and it will be out on February 24th. Cool. Definitely looking forward to that one. All right, everybody. I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Coming up next week in episode 227, Brett Hartinger will be here to talk about his latest book, as well as a brand new film project. Yes, I'm looking forward to talking with him. We're also going to delve into a little bit the travels he's doing with his husband, who's author Michael Jensen. They've been on the road for, I want to say, a couple of years now, living at various points around the world. And we're definitely going to dive into that a little bit as well. Remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next time, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.